Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. Today, the History Guy tells two stories of economic history. First, he tells the story of tulip mania, when beautiful tulips in the Netherlands went for as much as a house. Then he tells the story of how Queen Victoria's interest in fancy chickens helped create the modern chicken industry that we know today. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. An old man walked the city. He was resting wearily on a cane as he walked, and he was searching the city's flower beds. Whenever he saw a tulip, he would stop, raise the cane above his head, bring it down in a sharp arc, and destroy the offending flower. And then, as if nothing happened, he would simply start walking again, searching the city's flower beds for tulips and destroying them wherever he found them. He was destroying tulips because he was mad at them. It was 1637, and the bubble had just burst on tulip mania, a period of wild speculation over the simple tulip in the Dutch Republic that had left a wake of ruined lives and fortunes. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The history of the cultivation of the tulip begins in the Persian Empire, most likely around the 10th century. The blossoms were usually red, but occasionally would appear as white or yellow. Tulips are mentioned by Omar Khayyam, a famous Persian mathematician, astronomer, and poet. He wrote, What thou tis fair to view this form of man, I know not why, the heavily artisan, has set these tulip cheeks and cypress forms to deck the mournful halls of earth's divan. Historical records for the tulip are difficult to locate, as the flower may have been mistakenly identified or labeled by botanists unfamiliar with it. Part of the flower's charm was how quickly it could mutate or change color. Similar to apples, tulips have inherent variability, which means that they don't necessarily appear like their parent flower. A tulip plant can be grown from either seeds or buds, but a seed forms a flowering bulb after 7 to 12 years. Since it can take several years for the new plants with their unique colors to show, there's the potential for a delightful surprise. A botanist wrote in 1597 about the tulip, Nature seems to play more with this flower than with any other that I do know. This ability to change, some believed, showed the flower was blessed by the attention of God. Tulips bloom in April and May in the Northern Hemisphere, and then from June to September the plant is dormant and bulbs can safely be uprooted and moved. So purchases, at first, occurred during these months. The trade was tied to a natural schedule. The tulips we have today may not look like the tulips grown in Persia, Turkey, and later the Dutch Republic. For example, tulips with long petals were favored by early Ottoman botanists and artists. Artists, when drawing the ideal flower of the period, drew tulips that resembled daggers more than the softly cut flowers that are seen today. In fact, this ideal was impossible to maintain, as the closer the petals came to each other, the less pollinators could assist the tulip in propagation. Perhaps this is why the extremely long-petaled tulip is not common today. 
The tulip is believed to have been introduced to the Western world by an ambassador from the Habsburg Empire to the Constantinople court of Suleiman the Magnificent. In the early 1500s, Ogier Gizan du Bouzbeck shipped a container of the bulbs home where it ignited the imaginations of the plant admirers who saw it. Partially fueled by plant discoveries in the New World, botany was undergoing a type of renaissance at the time. Plants were being experimented with by physicians in order to determine what, if any, healing properties they may have possessed. Monarchs and other wealthy nobles planted vast gardens, seeking not just useful, but also beautiful and novel plants for their properties. The tulip was a perfect fit for the age, despite the fact that no practical use for the flower could be found. Attempts were made to develop a tulip into a delicacy to be eaten, but it didn't catch on. Some innovative physicians ground up and boiled the tulip, touting it as a cure for gas or uncomfortable bowels, but that also failed. The tulip has little to no scent, and some believe that the proved the flower to be moderate and chaste. Moral virtues highly prized by the Calvinists, Catholics, and other Christians of the era. Carolus Clusius, a physician and director of the Imperial Botanical Garden of Vienna, took some of the tulip bulbs with him when he relocated to the University of Leiden in the Dutch Republic. Clusius planted the plants in his new garden and became possessive of the tulips he grew, noting fascinating mutations. Some of these colorful mutations were labeled broken by botanists. Broken tulips are also called bizarres at the time, or when the solid color of the petal is crossed by lines or streaks of white or yellow, causing a beautiful change from a single color flower. Clusius and his contemporaries had no idea what caused the mutation, but were fascinated both by its beauty and seeming randomness. The moderate flower that was now something of a gamble, as the broken tulips were more difficult to offset, which increased the demand and value for them. Scientists now know that a virus spread by the peach potato aphid is primarily responsible for the stunning variations seen in tulips. Peach trees were a common fruit tree found in the gardens of the time, and the contamination probably happened within the gardens themselves. Since they didn't know what caused the mutations, gardeners tried to artificially coax the flowers to break by using plaster from walls or pigeon dung as fertilizer. Others attempted to put pigmentation directly into the soil, praying that the plants drew the color up into their stems and then into the petals. When these methods didn't work, the gardeners would approach the fortunate owner of the mutated tulips and ask for cuttings from them. Sell us your flowers, name the price, and we'll pay it, hobby botanist begged Clusius. He declined and would not be moved by any amount of money. He knew he would most likely not be able to replicate his extraordinary collection. Undeterred, the covetous gardeners organized a night raid into Clusius's gardens and stole the best ones they could find. After the theft, Clusius, according to contemporary historians, lost courage in the desire to continue their cultivation. However, he continued his correspondence with botany enthusiasts throughout the world and is credited with being the father of all the beautiful gardens in the Dutch Republic. The thieves lost no time spreading the bounty throughout the Republic. The stolen flowers of Clusius began something of a tulip renaissance, and the obsession with broken and rare tulips continued. The most valued flower of the era is still said to be the Semper Augustus, a red and white striped beauty that displayed its color both inside and outside the blossom, from the base to the tip of the petal. The Semper Augustus, which no longer exists today, wasn't even viewed by that many enthusiasts at the time, because almost all of the examples of the flower are owned by one person. Historians disagree on who that person was, but some say it was Dr. Adrian Pau, a director of the East India Company. A botanist from the period saw an example of the Semper Augustus in Powell's garden in 1624, and afterwards he wrote, Never did a florist see one more beautiful than this. Like Clusius before him, Powell refused to sell the flowers. Some collectors offered 13,000 florins, or the cost of a home, for the rare find. The increased demand for the rare and beautiful tulips caused their prices to skyrocket. 
Some collectors were selling their businesses to buy the flowers. A groom was said to have accepted a single tulip as a dowry for his bride. Everyone from the butcher to the baker was getting into the trade. A burglar was said to have sold his tools to purchase tulips. Tulips were big business. When the demand outpaced production, tulip bulb transactions were changed from exchanges for money for bulbs to promissory notes or a promise for delivery of bulbs in the future. Now historians say the wind handle or wind trade began in earnest as the trade was no longer tied to the natural dormant season for tulips. Curious trading practices began in response to the demand for tulips. A florist and a potential buyer would meet in the back room of a tavern where they would select impartial judges. The florist and buyer would write the price that they were willing to sell and buy the flower for on boards that would be passed to the judges. The two judges, or proxies, would consider the numbers on both boards and write down a number somewhere in between that they considered fair. Then the boards were passed back to the florist and potential buyer. If both accepted the price, then the deal was done. If only one person accepted the price, then the florist paid a fine to the judges, which acted as a small incentive to close the deal. When the buyer paid for the flowers, a small amount, called wine money, went to the judges. The wine money went to the tavern to keep the drinks and transactions flowing. Some bulbs are said to be bought and sold up to ten times in one day. It was a party-like atmosphere with incredible amounts of money changing hands. Until February 2nd, 1637. A florist in the city of Harlem went to the taverns and offered up his bulbs for sale, reportedly at 1,250 guilders. No one wanted the deal. He lowered it, and the result was the same. And again, no takers. Everyone in the room realized. Tulip mania was over. Word quickly spread, and florists across the Republic were left with worthless bulbs. Historians have argued about whether tulip mania was an actual bubble or simply the result of other pressures of the market. For example, in February 1637, the Guild of Dutch Florists lobbied the Parliament to change the rules regulating the contracts to buy bulbs, making the contracts more favorable to the buyer. Economist Earl Thompson believed this is why the prices of tulips ran way up. Buyers are speculating that the rule change would make them even more money. They ceased buying when they realized that it wasn't true. Whatever the causes of tulip mania, the biggest push against the phenomena was by religious groups who believed the rise and fall of the flower showed the population's underlying greed and desire for money. Pamphlets appeared with titles like The Fall of the Great Garden Whore and scenes from the remarkable year 1637 when one fool hatched another, the idle rich lost their wealth, and the wise lost their senses. These circulated through the cities, once centers of tulip mania. Now an old man walked down the street and crushed the worth of tulips, with his cane. Despite its volatile beginnings, the tulip is still intimately connected with Holland, which is sometimes called the flower shop of the world. Each year there are tulip festivals held all around the world in places where Dutch settlers made their homes, maintaining that intimate connection between the Dutch and the flower whose fortunes rose and fell in so short a period of time. And beyond those economic considerations, there's actually right now a search for the mythical black tulip. The idea of the black tulip was credited to Alexander Dumas, who in 1850 wrote a novel called The Black Tulip, which creates a human drama in which a person is to be awarded a prize if they can grow the perfect black tulip. And with the plant's natural variability, we are coming closer and closer to that today. Tulips so dark purple that they appear to be black. Some growers claim that the perfect black tulip is essentially the holy grail of tulip cultivation. And if someone were to grow one, you wonder what the bulb would be worth, and whether it would spark a new tulip mania. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. 
a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So one of the first things that I think is so interesting about this episode, and kind of interesting about a lot of the episodes that we do, is the way that we're able to you know learn about science while mm-hmm. learning about history. Yeah. Because uh, the, the tulips are an incredibly interesting plant. They and are. I, and, I don't know. And, and how tulips became the flower of, of the Netherlands, of yeah. Holland, uh, when they're a Middle Eastern plant. Uh, and, uh, and the nature of the, the, of the way the tulip works so that you get such a variety of tulips that could lead to tulip mania. mania yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, sometimes, uh, honestly, sometimes we get commenters who don't like that. And that is, you know, when we, talk, when we do the history guy, and you know, all our episodes are short, but when we do the history guy, we'll give the background necessary, I think, to understand the point. And then sometimes people will be like, well, you know, you know you're four minutes in before you talk about tulip mania. So, and, you know, people are, have a right to their opinion. But I thought that, that was very fascinating. And I think it's really very important in order to understand tulip mania that you understand yeah. tulips. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah that's, I enjoy that part of the episode as well. I mean, I think that, you know, ultimately, the, the, the stuff that you talk about with the tulip and the interesting, I mean, you're right, the historical kind of accidents that led to this Middle Eastern flower mm-hmm. being a flower that, that is, you know, that did this in the in the Netherlands. I mean, this is something that had to, uh, this had to happen the way it did in order for it to work out. So, like, I, I mean, I, yeah. but I, I, we get that and on it, both sides. What a fun flower, because it, really, yeah. it can really be almost anything. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you really can mess with almost any color or shape with the tulip, uh, because it's it's a heterozygote. So that's really, that's really yeah. a hoot and a half, yeah. Well, it's really interesting that they that they behave that way, and I... Mm-hmm. I I had, you know, I've seen tulips all my life. We have tulips. Uh, they just grow wild all over the place um, here. And, well, and they weren't here wild originally. <laughs> now <laughs> they are. Um, but, it's, but it's interesting that, you know, that this is how unique they are. And it's not something that you necessarily think about. Uh, but just like, you know, when you talked about the apples and how uh, mm-hmm. in the apple episode, how apples, every apple, new apple tree is going to be a new kind of apple. Yeah, uh, unless you're, I mean, you, you literally have to clone it. Yeah, uh, because the seed of the apple is not going to be a match to the apple it came from. Yeah, yeah. and so it's interesting that tulips are similar in such a in such a different way. <laughs> such a different way. Too. And so you can understand also. I mean, tulip mania is crazy as it seems, and, and there's some question about whether it was truly a bubble. But I mean, it's crazy as it seems. You can see how that could happen with the tulip, uh, yeah. and why that wouldn't necessarily happen with other flowers or other commodities, because you really can make unique tulips uh, that yeah. are really are things. Yeah, so much so that these guys had walls. So much so that when some when the guys broke in and stole some of his tulips, he just gave up growing them. I mean, yeah. so so that's because every tulip. with a matter of effort and time and uh, then you can make something truly truly unique and then you can see why that has a different value i kind of feel like one of the one of the things that made them so valuable was not just the randomness but the fact that they didn't even fully understand what was Mm -hmm. uh, what was making the especially like Mm -hmm. the broken uh tulips is that they didn't even know what that was and so if someone you know lucked upon uh, like like the 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 famous one, the Semper Augustus, mm-hmm. who were not even one hundred percent sure, you know, who owned this flower, mm-hmm. uh, but they, you couldn't recreate it. Yeah, yeah, and you know the mere fact that it was kind of you know held that way, you know, it creates this yeah. mis- mystery around it and stuff like that. So I mean, it's kind of funny. It's kind of you know it, to to an extent, some of it was like toilet paper hoarding during COVID. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I, you know, to to another extent, it's just like you know, oh, they've got one, and that's giving them prestige. And you know, if we don't get one, then we won't have prestige. Uh, and so it's there's the, you know there's a lot of it that's kind of strange and vain and there's a lot of it where you know clearly 
you know, the flour was not worth the amount of money that they were that they yeah. were putting into it. But on the other hand, there's a lot of it is that you're really doing something amazing, creating this flour, uh, and it's it's you know interesting as literally an art form, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's uh, you know it's it's just a really it's a strange story, uh, but it also yeah. shows where the Netherlands were at that point. You know, they were they were wealthy, they were merchants, they had a worldwide empire, uh, and uh, they had the the ability uh, the they had the level of wealth that they could sit and uh, and, and you know drive up the price of flowers uh, and, and then in fact every you know a burglar sold his burglary tools to buy flower bulbs yeah. so that had but to that be was, embarrassing more... then when you couldn't sell a flower bulb yeah because <laughs> yeah, you couldn't it's... even go steal your tools back couldn't even go steal your tools back that you'd sold them <laughs> i mean it's it's all of this stuff that came together with it's it is an art form they were into plants in general because we were getting all these plants from other parts of the world mm -hmm. uh, and there were gardens and stuff like that and then you got a particular flower that seemed to be able to show uh, i mean a talent even though mm -hmm. clearly they didn't quite understand that it, they're, you know they're like let's pour pigments into the soil and stuff mm -hmm. and see if the uh <laughs> try to figure out how it works yeah but it's and so you know you're trying to work hard but it, it makes the guy who was lucky enough to get uh the the broken one doesn't even know how he doesn't how have he any did idea it. it's actually a disease it's causing it to do yeah. that yeah uh it's yeah really it's interesting so it's so it's so they're they're combining the science of trying to learn because you know a lot yeah. of natural science was learned just by experimentation yeah uh, but they're also re you know recognizing the beauty uh, but then it yeah. also creates this 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 mania. But you know, to be honest, uh, I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I would have to look it up, but I would imagine the Netherlands does a, uh, an awful lot of business in flowers still and bulbs and things today. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a multi-million dollar, billion-dollar oh, yeah. business. Euros, I'm sure you can sell but, a lot of tulips. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, and and certainly, you know, the the tulips in the Netherlands attract you know millions of visitors every year too. So, yeah. I mean, it is it's it's not that they're you know that they're not valuable because I'm sure they're still valuable today. Uh, but I yeah. mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna sell bulbs for thousand bucks a piece, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it is interesting. I mean, the whole episode is essentially us talking about what what made it about this the particular plant, the tulip. Why the mm -hmm. tulip? And this is what we see. And they, I mean, this is something that made everyone abandon all sense. Yeah. Uh, they, they, yeah, but, <laughs> like and, you know, said, and once, once it's a frenzy, then you feel like you know you got that FOMO, you got that fear of missing out and stuff like that. But the, so it it had to do with culture, it had to do with time, but it also very much had to do with with tulips and what you can do with tulips. Yeah, yeah, and tulips uh, clearly they arrived at the correct time. It's interesting that they started with essentially one dude who's just kind of he kind of had tulips because they were pretty, mm -hmm. and he was interested in and and how they were pretty and what they and then someone comes in and steals them, and before you know it tulips are selling for thousands of yeah uh, the equivalent of thousands of dollars and uh, but it's well it's and how, amazing. how quickly that bubble burst is really fascinating yeah. too from an economic standpoint that yeah. was literally like one day you could sell them for a thousand guilders and the next day you can't the and then you can't you can't sell them at all you know everybody suddenly realized we have too many there's i mean there's a lot of you know we see a lot of that stuff you know a lot of, uh, yeah. you know and uh, you know i don't know beanie babies and hummel figures and all the stuff that that we had artificial rarity and then you know ebay came along and you find out no you know, my, yeah. my ultra rare beanie baby. There's 75 of them on sale for 75 cents. Yeah, it's so, it's maybe yeah. not worth seventeen thousand yeah. dollars, or yeah. Or, and, or, and you just had like these websites saying, "Oh, this is its value," uh, and you know, and then when you actually go try to sell it, you find out, oh, no, you know, baseball cards yeah. too. You thought yours is extremely rare. You find out when once people start digging them out of their attics, then you know that they're not nearly as rare. Yeah, they're not as well, and that's, you know, it was fine when you were just trading it with the kids in your neighborhood, but uh, now, you know, yeah, yeah, but market. there's there's people who put, you know, who thought they were putting their retirement away in things that we've found out since are not, are not valuable. 
And there's still, I mean, there's still some stuff that, you know, there's still probably baseball cards and Magic the Gathering cards and uh, and Pokemon cards. You know, there's some that are still uh, of some kind yeah. of value. Yeah. Uh, but but certainly, you know, most of them we found out, ah, these aren't really, mm-hmm. these aren't really worth anything. I still yeah. have some Pokemon cards that I had bought for the same reason that I was like, oh, you know, I'll keep the rare ones because they might be worth something someday. Not, nothing I have is worth anything. I, I had the original but... Kenner set of the Star Wars figures. You know, uh, at Christmas, those, they didn't things... come out yet, so all you got was a cardboard thing. I got that. <laughs> and I got those figures, and if I had left them in the box, if they, if, 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 well, if, if I still had them, but I mean, I played with yeah. them until they fell apart, you know. Uh, but yeah. I mean, those, those, I imagine what they'd be worth today. So, but then if I'd done that, still, yeah. if I just put them away in this box and not looked at them for, uh, you know, and there's what, then what would you do if you found out then that they don't have any value at all and you never played with them? So, yeah, I, I, you know, right. it's, it, it is an interesting story, and you can see a lot of parallels with what's going on here. But it really yeah. did have to do with specifically the economic time, the social time uh, in, uh, at the time, uh, and, uh, and the, the, you know, the, unique, the unique thing that these really were rare flowers uh, that yeah. were really very difficult to acquire and, and uh, could be a, a symbol of status. But it is kind of funny the way that that episode begins and ends that finally some, one guy's so mad about tulip mania <laughs> that he walks around and whacks flowers Smash with a stick. Yeah. Because there's still, I mean, there's still flowers. They're still pretty. Yeah. I don't know, you know, you're like, ah, oh, darn, you know, I it's thought like, this, this flower buy me stole a house. My... But it's still a nice, <laughs> you know, still a pretty flower. I'm like, mad. Blame the flower for heaven's sake. Yeah, I was going to say, the flower, flower didn't do anything. anything. All the flower did was be there. <laughs> yeah. The flower wasn't the selling itself. Like, hey, for... what, what, the, what the? Um, what do I it's, do? It's interesting. I mean, like a whole a whole little economy grew up around these things. One uh-huh. of the one of the things that I find interesting is that you know they they're so interested in the trading of these these the bulbs and the flowers that they essentially stop even trading the flowers themselves, and they're trading just pieces of paper that say mm-hmm. you know, some number of flowers on them. Uh, you, yeah, to that extent, so it's like gold or whatever. You know, it's, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's any other commodity. Yeah, yeah. The value of the the suddenly the actual flower was was a lot less meaningful. Because uh, you're you're trading your because you think you've got you know you've got your piece of paper that says you owe me six. I imagine there were a lot there was a lot of paper that went into the garbage after those flowers. Yeah, yeah. Because at that point you might not even care to go go you know go yeah, you go collect yeah on the on the bulbs <laughs> that you paid for. But clearly uh, they kept planting those bulbs. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's there. it's funny that the the Netherlands is still all about tulips when uh, you know that apparently if you uh-huh. ask that one guy he's like I'd rather have never seen a tulip <laughs> a tulip again, again in my yeah. life but <laughs> uh, such a short time that you know this it exploded people were buying mm-hmm. them all so many things uh, it ultimately have some kind of value because we all because we believe they have value I mean mm-hmm. right and ultimately money is mostly that way yeah. uh, and as long as we all as long as we all continue to be like yes this is something we trade and it's worth things it's all fine but it. it <laughs> As soon as they're like, oh, you know, I don't. Uh, maybe it's kind of stupid to to buy a flower for for a thousand guilders or whatever. Suddenly, the whole the yeah, whole, thing, the whole just... thing falls apart. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little yeah, frightening to see one, how that that kind of one moment of uh, the emperor has no clothes and the whole the whole thing comes crashing down. Yeah, I mean, it's it just seems you know the way they describe it, and you know, I don't know exactly how actually this, but it's like, so, like people didn't really see it coming, and and uh, no. You know how how it could be that sudden is, is really. I mean, there there had to be a few that were sitting back saying this isn't this isn't going to work before that because it wouldn't all just decide one day. But there had to be there had to be someone who was well. And that you you talked about a little bit that they were like trying to change the rules on how they sold the flowers and and I mean maybe that kind of stuff uh, just just jolted the jolted everybody into realizing that you know when they changed the rules so that the sellers are getting more out of the flowers they're like huh. Why do I? Uh, why do I care? <laughs> if and and suddenly you know they're trying to make this market 
uh, something that can last longer or whatever, and they find out that the, the market actually was only there because of the, the craze. And it's kind of interesting how that kind of stuff would sustain itself and how it all how it all just just collapses. But it is, I, I mean, truly, the fact that someone comes in and tries to sell them one day, and then the next day suddenly just no one will buy them. I, I try to imagine what that room must have felt like as everyone kind of looked around at each other and, like, realized how stupid they were all being at the same time. <laughs> are all like oh yeah because certainly that florist that walked in with it wasn't the only one that was holding worthless flowers no right mm-hmm. and, well and everyone had been trading they were talking about they'd trade a trade a bulb 10 10 times in a day they'd sell it back and forth and mm-hmm. I, I i mean that's that's incredible and it's amazing that everyone got so caught up in it i'm sure after the fact everyone was like oh, i knew it was a fad I knew this wasn't gonna last. No one could buy flowers for that much for that long. But some some people must have made out. You know, I mean, they must have ended up. Some people ended up with the money instead of the flowers, and because that money was all yep. going around someplace. Yeah, someone um, ended up with the money instead of the flowers. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, uh, not not everybody. Clearly, most people uh, ended up. You know, all these people were trying to get in at the at the front end of it. The bakers selling his baker business, his bakery, and he probably uh, some people like that were probably like, oh my god should have kept the other flower yeah it's true but i mean there's some there's somebody that bought a flower for one gilder and sold it for a hundred and and yeah. uh, you know if they got out at the right time but you know and um, obviously you think cryptocurrency and i mean there's so much yeah. that you want to think about today but the thing is you can't always predict the future and uh, no. and if you could you, you know you'd be a winner so well, there's I mean, a reason you know, stocks you know, whatever a- yeah. yeah, there's a reason why people get into all this stuff. Because, yeah, I mean, when you talk about stocks, there's it's uh, confusing exactly how, how they find mm-hmm. all that value and how that value goes up and down. And uh, everyone's always I mean, looking it's, for It's usually the, tied to something vaguely real about you know, uh, something vaguely real, at least, yeah. Like <laughs> I, I mean, in a lot of it seemed to more like almost run into like a gambling fever, right? I mean, yes. similar, so, so you, you do have you do have a real commodity beneath it that has a, yeah. you know, a real and, and meaningful commodity. Uh, but uh, you also have uh, just a lot of ex- exuberance and excitement but uh you know that seems to go beyond the value of that but then there's also just the i could you know i could maybe make a whole lot more out of this flower if i'm so um, at some point it's almost like you're playing cards right well and it's got it seemed it probably was seemed fairly cheap to get into it and it was something that anybody could get into because you could get the flowers Uh, and i think that's part of why you know it it was had such broad appeal is that it seemed like anyone could you know Mm -hmm. suddenly become a really wealthy person uh which i I think most people would love the idea that oh, I, you know, I'm toiling away at my bakery, but I could just go buy a couple flowers, and before you know it, I never have to work again. It certainly is, is it, you know, it's a little like a card game too. I mean, you're yeah. really hoping to bluff it up and you know win the big ball well, and get out of there before you know the the before it all collapses. Yeah. Well, and you, I, I'm sure there were some people who hoped that they'd be able to move into the tulip business and never yeah. leave, and that's well, ultimately apparently some did, but. But yeah, like so, you know, yeah. when it's Halloween and you're trading your candy, you know, on kids, at least in the end, yeah. you can eat your candy. <laughs> you yes, know? as opposed to, well, because that was, the tulips apparently have almost uh, no other value. They're not like medicinal or you yeah. can't use them in cooking. But <laughs> they're, we just did one on Tristan de Kuna, you know, they were trading potatoes. Well, I mean, you know, at least it's what's for dinner, right? <laughs> yeah. But ultimately... I think if you hang on to your currency for too long, it goes bad, right? So, I mean, it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the tulips will keep growing, uh, but they might not be worth anything next year. That's the yeah, that's yeah. The real especially trick. if they're you know if they're out of fat or something like that. You put a lot of work into your tulip, and they're like ah, pff, red passe.
Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? I found one that really amused me. So there's a, there's a guy in the UK, his name is Guy Martin, and he was a professional motorcycle racer. Uh, and then he became a television presenter uh, and d- does some shows there. Apparently he's fairly famous there. I don't think he's terribly well-known in the U.S. But uh, he decided that for the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Cambrai, he was going to scratch build a Mark IV tank. The name of the, epi- uh, of the show is Guy Martin's World War I Tank, a tribute to the British Mark I. Uh, but really was <laughs> it really was a guy with extra money and mechanical skills that says, I want to m- build my own tank. Uh, and the episode is him building the tank. Uh, and it's a hoot. Now, they, they use a lot of modern methods. So he actually gets the assistance of a, of a, it's a heavy machinery manufacturer, I think. Uh, they found that the, the blueprints that still existed were not accurate blueprints. But there's a oh, guy really? in Germany who makes models. He's a German, which is kind of ironic. But he makes <laughs> models. Uh, and he decided the models weren't accurate enough. And so he did CAD design full blueprints of the thing. And they used those. <laughs> as part of the model. Uh, but they use like, you know, the, like the engine is a Rolls Royce engine that's kind of like the engine that they use, but it's a more modern engine. Uh, they used uh, uh, welding, which is how we do it today. They use laser welding. And so the, the rivets are all just glued on, they're fake. You know, fairly similar construction methods. And they made a tank. Uh, and sometimes pieces were breaking off. They had they had some you know, struggles on the way, but uh, they you know they got that tank out there at Cambrai for the hundredth anniversary, and they drove it around. And he had the they named the tank after a tank that was destroyed at Cambrai, and so they had a guy whose grandfather was in that tank wow. who survived that battle. His, so they were all in the episode. At the end, they all get to go drive in the tank. Obviously, if the history guy ever hits it really big, then there's going to be a, Magellan will have the documentary. The history guy built his own tank. Yeah. <laughs> It was absolutely, I would recommend it. It was a hoot and a half to watch. I think he's got another, a couple of, of episodes as well. But So what did, what did you watch, Magellan, this week? So one of the ones I was watching that I, that I found really interesting, and it's, it's uh, again, down a, a very different rabbit hole, uh, it was called Cocaine Captains. And I saw that name and I was like, hmm, I want to see what that is. And it turns out that it's about a particular case. It's one of the largest drug busts in South Africa. And so it's it's about this group of guys that are apparently wealthy business owners who came to South Africa and were a part of some kind of global drug trade. And it's interesting how they're able to catch them because this this South African port is an open port. There's no one checking what you're uh, what you're bringing in on your boats. And so Ooh. the idea is they had a boat that they said was a fishing boat, and then when they went out for five days, they just didn't bring back fish. They <laughs> they brought back a large amount of cocaine. It ended up it was two tons of cocaine. I mean, just that is a it is a lot of drugs, That's but it's insane, really kind yeah. of interesting what it what it might represent and the what kind of huge drug cartel or whatever is working these you know these international systems and how they're taking advantage of of these open ports in South Africa or you know all over the world that they're able to do this kind of stuff. Ultimately, I mean, you come out of it thinking, wow, uh, I wonder how much of that stuff is happening, you know, in some part of the some part of the world where I'm at. Uh, that I don't even know because the people in this town had no idea until they just had, you know, someone gets a little suspicious and starts filming them from there, essentially from across the, the port, just starts filming these guys carrying something into their house and then boom, before you know it. It's both kind of frightening and kind of uh, interesting to think about what kinds, of, what kinds of things are going on just beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy 
where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership, or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of hen fever. It is a basic tenet of economics that if demand exceeds supply, then prices will rise. And occasionally there's a rapid increase in demand that will drive up prices so high that it becomes a bubble that can then burst. In the 1850s, just such a bubble was created when Queen Victoria started a fad. Queen Victoria had a huge collection of very special items, and that spurred others throughout the United Kingdom and elsewhere to try to develop their own collections of these beautiful items based on on rarity and aesthetics. The object of their affection that drove such an increase in prices? Well, chickens. The history of what was called hen fever, or the chicken bubble, deserves to be remembered. In 1855, George P. Burnham published a book called The History of Hen Fever, A Humorous Record. In it, he wrote that never in the history of modern bubbles did any mania exceed in ridiculousness or ludicrousness or in the number of its victims surpass this inexplicable humbug. Chickens weren't a rare sight in England. They were bred as farm animals for centuries. First domesticated in Southeast Asia around 8,000 years ago, chickens reached Europe around 2,800 years ago, and evidence suggests they arrived in England about 300 years later. They were common in Europe throughout much of recorded history. They were used for sport, cockfighting, as well as for food. Among the oldest recognized breeds in England include the Sussex, the Rocombe, and the Old English Game, as well as the Dorking Chicken. By the early 19th century, Sir John Saunders Seabright had sexually bred his own ornamental chicken breed, the Seabright. It wasn't, however, British breeders or breeds that first attracted the attention of Queen Victoria. Victoria was a well-known lover of animals, and from a young age kept dogs as constant companions. Raised under the Kensington system devised by her mother, Victoria was not allowed to socialize with children her own age, and in 1833, at the age of 13, she instead found a friend in a King Charles Spaniel named Dash, whom Victoria called Dear Dashy. One biographer called Dash the Queen's closest childhood companion. Victoria would own many dogs throughout her life, as well as parrots, pigeons, ponies, and even goats. She kept kangaroos, ostriches, and monkeys as well. She was also well-known for enjoying animals in other settings. She frequented Regent's Park Zoo, the world's oldest scientific zoo, which opened in 1828, and accepted most of the various animals of the royal family's menagerie from the Tower of London in 1831 or 1832. It first opened to the public in 1847 and reported that her children were delighted with the giraffes and elephants in 1848. She would loan many of the exotic animals that the family received to the zoo, such as elephants, tigers, lions, and ostriches. She was also a fan and patron of George Wombell's Royal Menagerie, which traveled with an impressive collection of exotic animals. But in 1842, she received a gift that to a modern audience slightly seems considerably less exotic. Five hens and two roosters. The giver of this gift was Edward Belcher, a meticulous and effective surveyor and one of the most hated officers in the Royal Navy, thanks to his reputation for making life a living hell for his officers on every ship he commanded. The Dictionary of National Biography said of him that perhaps no officer of equal ability has ever succeeded in inspiring so much personal dislike. His wife, a stepdaughter of one of the famous mutineers on the bounty, later wrote an account of the mutiny that based her portrayal of the cruel Captain Bly on her husband, Edward. But perhaps his greatest impact on history is the chicken. 
His personal issues aside, he returned to England in 1842 after having participated in the first opium war in China, after having done the first British survey of Hong Kong. The chickens he brought with him were a Chinese breed, which the Queen called Cochin China Fowl. Exactly what breed of chicken they were is a little less clear, as it isn't certain where Belcher originally acquired the birds, but these Cochin chickens were special. Around three times the size of the typical English chicken, they also had feathers on their feet. They were also sometimes called Shanghai birds. According to a 19th century historian, Cochins came like giants upon the scene. They were seen and they conquered. Victoria was immediately enamored with the birds, which were nothing like the chickens of Victorian England, or indeed all of Europe, were accustomed to. The Illustrated London News wrote that these extraordinary birds are of gigantic size, and their proportions very nearly allied to the family of bustards, to which, in all probability, they are approximately related. In fact, they had already acquired the name the ostrich fowl. Bustards, if you are unfamiliar, are a kind of large bird considered some of the world's heaviest flying birds. The paper also wrote glowingly about the bird's eggs, of a deep mahogany color and of a delicious flavor. Prince Albert had grown up with an aviary in Germany and had brought birds with him to England upon his marriage. Beginning in 1842, he and the Queen oversaw work at Windsor on a royal aviary, which would hold chickens as well as doves, bustards, storks, and pheasants. Built by Messrs. Bedborough and Jenner, the semi-Gothic building they built had a central pavilion for inspecting the fowls, which had dovecote and several roosting houses. The chambers were spacious, airy, and of an equal and rather warm temperature, allowing the birds to make their nests as they would in the bramble-covered recesses of their original jungles. By 1849, her collection was very considerable, with a half-dozen extensive yards, numerous feeding houses, laying sheds, hospitals, and winter courts. Included in her collection were a number of the Cochin Chinas, as well as white Java Bantams, Bantams being smaller breeds of chickens, and splendid Bantams of Sir John Seabright's breed. Victoria had a sitting room where she could relax and enjoy her birds, and was proud enough of her collection that decorated hen's eggs were sent to royal relatives across the continent. The royal poultry keeper was also breeding the birds, and during the Great Famine in Ireland, several of the larger birds were sent to Ireland in the hopes that the new breeds would be able to alleviate the crisis. By 1845, the Queen's interest in chicken breeding was spreading to others in the UK, and the wealthy were acquiring breeding and exchanging their chickens, not for their eggs or their meat, but purely for their beauty. This kind of collecting and hobby became known as hen fever, or the fancy, a term which now can refer to any animal collecting hobby, such as cat fancy and dog fancy. 1845 saw the first English poultry show in London. These shows exhibit chickens, ducks, geese, guinea fowl, and turkeys. Pigeons, not always considered poultry, often appeared in these shows as well. In 1846, Victoria showed her own cochins at the Royal Dublin Show. Tens of thousands of people showed up to see the exotic birds when they were shown in Birmingham in 1850. Helping to popularize the chicken fancy also was the 1849 banning of cockfighting in the United Kingdom, with chicken breeding and poultry shows being offered as an alternative competition. 1853 saw the publication of The Poultry Book by the Rev. W. Wingfield and G. W. Johnson, Esquire, which offered some of the first full descriptions of various breeds and defended the poultry economy, writing, Re-remember, in one of the old satirists of the Tudor period, to observe the superlative of contempt to have been concentrated in the epithet, Thou Keeper of Capons. Hence, those who gave their minds to poultry economy, we may legitimately conclude, were not among the highly esteemed. The authors bemoan that for decades, the profits arising from poultry are too inconsiderable to enter into the calculations of the farmer, and that until within the last ten years, it is not an exaggeration to say that improvement of poultry was totally neglected in this country but that now everyone acknowledges that poultry are just as capable of improvement 
as any other kind of farming stock. The growing popularity of fancy chickens was in fact transforming opinions on chickens in general, especially as livestock and as a food source. Perhaps more importantly for the economy of chicken, after 1845, prices of fancy chickens were exploding. The poultry book recounts a price of 40 guineas for a single Shanghai chicken and 100 pounds for 20 Spanish chickens. Adjusting for inflation, those prices are truly boggling. 40 guineas coming to about 5,600 pounds in 2022 and 100 pounds in 1853, equivalent to over 13,000 pounds today. Chickens, so cheap that they weren't even considered as profit to a farmer years before, were suddenly incredibly valuable. It wasn't just in the UK that hen fever caught on. In the United States, George Burnham's 1853 History of Hen Fever, a humorous record, recounted how the fad took America by storm while lampooning its absurdity. Burnham describes how in the summer of 1849 a friend commented positively on his chickens, swearing that while Burnham had only one kind of chicken, he had them all, and indeed had just that year bred several new kinds. He described the Cochin chickens humorously. They resembled giraffes much more than they did any other thing. In 1849, Boston held America's first poultry show. Burnham described the hurricane of excitement of the hen men, with the 10,000 people turning out to see the rare and curious and inexpressibly beautiful samples held in cages there. All of this despite the fact that the people of Boston already had chickens, unknown, unhonored, and unsung. But the public loved it. One commentator called the show, indeed, a magnificent exhibition. The show was the idea of John C. Bennett, because, he said, people were being deceived into the purchase of spurious fowls, supposing them to be purebloods. Success of the first show demanded a second the following year, then a national show in New York, and suddenly exhibitions and clubs were popping up all over the country. Suddenly eggs were selling for a dollar each, and a pair of chickens could go for as much as $120, the equivalent of around $3,600 today. Among the famous chicken breeds derived from this time was the Rhode Island Red, which was bred from Asian chickens such as the Cochin and Malay with Italian leghorn chickens after 1850. Brahma chickens, which appear to have been first bred in the United States, appear to also have come from the large, fluffy Shanghai chickens, possibly from crossbreeding with great Chittagong chickens. Brahma chickens were officially named in 1852, and George Burnham himself sent nine of the Brahmins to Queen Victoria at the end of that year. The Illustrated London News said that the birds were of mammoth proportions and exquisite plumage. Demand was so great for these fancy chickens that Burnham describes grown men coming to his house to buy eggs and waiting for hours when he had none, just to be there when the chicken laid its next egg. The Poughkeepsie Journal wrote in 1850 that the California fever sinks into oblivion when compared to the hen fever, that California fever meaning the California gold rush. The early 1850s saw the mania go truly wild. Dorking chickens were sold for $40 a pair, while at a Birmingham show, two Seabright Bantams were sold for $125, according to an 1855 edition of the Courier-Journal of Louisville, Kentucky. Even more ludicrously, a pair of Cochins was held for $700 in 1852. Demand in America was no less wild, where in Boston, three Cochins went for $100, or a pair of Chittagongs for 50 this was a small fortune of money in the 1850s, all being paid for chickens. George Burnham claimed that in 1853, sales of his chickens amounted to $23,000, or around $830,000 today. Burnham sent chickens to such luminaries at the time as Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. P.T. Barnum even got in on the game when he put on a national poultry show at his museum in Manhattan in 1854. But by 1855, the fever was slowing down. The chickens weren't as rare as they once were, bought and sold and bred across the United States and Britain, and while they could still demand some high prices, the upper classes grew bored of the game. 
Hundreds or thousands of breeders had put together enormous hutches and henhouses and spent fortunes attempting to get the best stock, but it was becoming clear by 1855 that no one really understood why they were raising the chickens, except to sell them again. Burnham describes getting letters where once-excited breeders couldn't give the birds away. I am now the owner of nearly 300 of these infernal, cursed, miserable ghosts in feathered mail, which I cannot get rid of. As with all bubbles, when it burst, there had been fortunes both made and lost, and many thousands of dollars tied up in chickens too expensive to feed or keep. Prices cratered, and the huge collection of fancy chickens became nothing more than egg layers and food. But the proliferation of these breeds did have some significant effect on the popularity of chicken as time went on. Many of these breeds were bred specifically to be better egg layers, and chickens the second half of the 19th century were both larger and laid more eggs than their predecessors. The advent of artificial incubation, along with the rationing of things like pork and beef in the First World War, would help turn chickens into a global food phenomenon. Between 1880 and 1890, the population of chickens in the U.S. nearly tripled, from 100 to 280 million chickens, raised not for their beauty anymore, but for their eggs and their meat. The fancy didn't die off completely. The first poultry club of Great Britain lasted only a few years, but in 1865 created the first standard reference for judges at poultry shows, and a reconstituted club in 1877 continued the standard. Perhaps most surprisingly, the bubble's aftermath benefited another famous figure, Charles Darwin. Although he didn't mention it much in On Origin of Species, published in 1859, Darwin was able to collect a large number of fancy chickens when their prices collapsed in the second half of the 1850s. Darwin was able to compare the selectively bred fancy chickens to their wild counterparts and examine morphological differences, which were more pronounced in chickens than in other farm animals. In particular, he studied Polish chickens, which had amazing plumes of feather that came out of their heads. Selective breeding for the trait was changing the way the chicken's bones formed as well. But the poultry economy has shifted, and commercial production has led us to rely on just a few standard breeds, and even some heritage breeds have faced issues with inbreeding as they are being bred towards those characteristics that are preferable to commercial breeders. And because of this, according to National Geographic, nearly a third of chicken breeds face extinction. This places the food supply at greater risk in case of the rise of pest or disease, and also threatens to deprive the world of the unique beauty of heritage chicken breeds. This risk to those breeds led the blog Biodiversity Heritage Library to opine, forget hen fever, let's hope for a hen revival. In a modern twist, the COVID lockdown has led to a sort of renewed hen fever, as CBS News noted last year. The coronavirus pandemic is propelling one new American pastime to new heights, with more people forced to hunker down at home, setting up coops and raising chickens in their backyards. Businesses that sell chicks, coops, and other supplies have seen a surge in demand since the pandemic took hold, with the ironic effect of increasing the number of Americans sickened by salmonella. Like any other economic bubble, hen fever had its winners and its losers, but it also had a large impact on modern society. It popularized the chicken as a food source, and it made the production of chickens much more practicable and profitable. Today, chickens are the number one preferred protein in the United States. And hen fever might not totally have faded because increasing demand means that since 1990, the number of chickens on earth has doubled. Today, there are more chickens in the world than people. So somehow, after seeing how much people would pay for a flower that uh, wouldn't do, that you couldn't even cook, <laughs> uh, but was only pretty, uh, ornamental chickens still sounds more ridiculous. 
you know, it's, I mean, there's, I mean, the, the similarity between these two episodes and how it becomes a fad and, and everything, yeah. because like, so they're just they're fancy, but uh, yeah. uh, but and you know, but these, I mean, the interesting story here is that we actually did end up with chickens that gave us more eggs yeah. and bigger eggs, and then we actually improved chickens for human consumption because of yeah. because of hen fever. But uh, this, the, you know, this has that added mystique of it is that it was associated with the queen uh, and, uh, yeah. and that that connection to royalty. Uh, makes a whole lot more sense of why initially you would get the fad started, uh, but yeah, it is cause funny because you know, we, you know, mostly people that are raising chickens, they got two or three breeds of chickens that are doing it. It's funny to see, yeah. you know, the sort of ones that they're going to be showing at the county fair, where someone has a coop of chickens and they're all full-grown chickens and they're, you know, they're radically different sizes and colors. Uh, they're still chickens. Still chickens. I've, I've never found the smart breed, but <laughs> they do have very color, colorful breeds. <laughs> and it's you know it's funny because those are all chickens. You know, like you, know, you know, Cornish game hen, game hens. You know, those things that you find at the store. Yeah, uh, they're not. They, those are just a small breed of chicken. Those are a fully grown version yeah. of a small breed of chicken. And they're, they're they're not from Cornwall. They're not game, and they're not exclusively <laughs> hens. They actually do roost. They they do the cocks with those too. But uh, so I mean, it's funny that you got chickens from you know here to here. You know, and the stuff blowing out of their forehead and, and all, cra- you know, all kinds of crazy feathers yeah, and yeah. it's it's really interesting you know and of course victoria is is interesting in so many ways but one of the ways she was interesting was uh, she was she grew up in almost i mean almost complete isolation and she i remember i watched a, a documentary on magellan at one point about victoria and her pets and you know she was very very close to her pets uh, the dog dash and we, we only kind of barely mentioned that here but it's part of what you know made it so interesting to her to get these chickens um i think it is amazing to think of the idea because today it just seems you know chickens are an ordinary thing chicken mm-hmm. every they're freaking billions of chickens in yeah the, world. The, the most ordinary thing and, and you know most everybody eats chickens and doesn't really wonder yeah. what the chicken looked like before you ate it yeah yeah, not look, not wondering what kind of feathers it had, but she uh, was given these chickens by this guy Edward Belcher, who uh, we I had to mention. I, I wrote this script, and so I had to mention a little bit about him because I think it is hysterical that this dude, who is otherwise famously just a jerk, he, he his his part in history is that he was just known for for being the biggest jerk in the in the Royal Navy. Apparently, is also why we eat chickens today. Yeah, why we eat chickens today. <laughs> and eggs, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just... Hey, he happens to bring by these chickens that he found somewhere. We're not even sure where. Uh, and that, that, that altered human history, uh, food history, is, it's, it's a really funny, it's a really funny coincidence. It is, yeah. But well, it, you know, that they, because what, they call them, what, Singapore chickens? No, they call them... Uh, um, uh, uh, Cochin, Cochin, Cochin chickens. chickens yeah, we don't know that they're that from Cochin at all. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's a <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crazy story, and it's yeah, domesticated chickens are the most. The, the, there's more domesticated chickens than any other bird species on the planet. Yeah, uh, and that 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 happened, you know, out of this weird coincidence. I mean, people raised chickens before. Actually, there's a lot of reasons. We have a whole episode on yeah. chickens. A lot of reasons that yeah. chickens have been raised, but that we have, you know, this industry is built around these breeds of chickens that came out of this very weird format. Yeah. Uh, and that you know they're literally arguing that the, the the chicken fever in the end of trying to get the fancy chickens yeah. uh, was was bigger than the you know the the gold rush you know the, the yeah in terms of the amount of people that were fascinated with you know chickens crazy crazy stuff and, and you know the European chickens that were there before apparently I mean everyone would have chickens there were chickens all over the place uh-huh. uh, but they weren't uh, they weren't economically important 
you weren't selling chickens uh, or raising them for food, really. Yeah, that was the point. No. Chickens were cheap. That's yeah. why everybody had chickens. Were cheap. Yeah, chickens were cheap. And then yeah. suddenly we had this world. But it, it is it is really interesting that essentially she sees these chickens, trying to imagine a world where you're used to seeing one kind of chicken, and oh that's goodness. what it looks like. And yeah. she gets these fancy chickens that are huge, apparently. Oh, compared somebody, to the. I mean, it's there when you look at all the pictures of them. I mean, there's there are tons and tons of breeds of chickens. But yeah. uh, I mean, the, you know, the one with the feathers are covering their feet, and they, you know, they, they, they various colors are. You know, uh, stuff coming off the top of her head, all yeah. sorts of stuff. So I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's chicken fanciers here, and that, that whole term fancier comes from chickens. But uh, the, I'm sure there's chicken fanciers here who are laughing at our own terminology and our own understanding yeah. of chickens. <laughs> I happen to live, by the way, in a city where it is not legal for me to raise chickens. I didn't take on the fad in the in during COVID because chickens are not allowed in the city limits where where I'm at. Uh, See, but, my town did take on the chickens and so i had several cousins who who got chickens and what i can say about it is i'm glad that i didn't how get chickens. how do chickens live through the winter in wyoming <laughs> uh, you know they didn't they they were in their basement oh. and uh apparently Ooh, they uh, it's it's rather difficult um <laughs> from what i understand from my cousins i never met any of their chickens none of those chickens <laughs> are now with any of those cousins <laughs> the chickens have been rehomed but like I, they also had pet cats so one of them apparently got i, I mean they had a badly mauled chicken because a cat got oh, because at it a cat, and yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah, trying to keep your chickens in your right basement he said that he's looking at me like i you can raise chickens I'd, I'd, I'd be fine with that yeah. So I, you know, there's there was a huge movement toward that during COVID. The people have, you know, that started was, to. That was funny. It was a new kind of hen fever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh... I I I don't know that I was ever feeling like I wanted to raise a chicken. Um, it's a different kind of thing, and then you also have to deal with. I mean, if you put them outside, you have to deal with raccoons or foxes or yes, whatever else. Yes, they very often get, get killed in there. by the wildlife. Yeah. That's what I hear from people who raise chickens: yes. is don't name them, or you'll you'll miss yes. them when you come in. There's we, nothing but. Feathers. Feathers. Yeah. We, you know, we had a mountain lion wa walking around town. I, I bet a mountain lion would pick up a chicken. Uh, uh, especially when it's all cooped up. Couldn't get away. Yeah. yeah I imagine that. Yeah, I think, think that it would awesome. enjoy that. Yeah. We're sounding anti-chicken here. Not at all. You go to a county. If you really want to understand him fever, go to a county fair. Because, I mean, I've been to yeah. some well, county fairs where I'm like, that thing's a chicken? You know? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That is a crazy looking chicken. So you can imagine why, like you, you want to be like, look at what I got. You know? Yeah, look at this awesome. crazy looking chicken. They're... So they are, and they're not. They're, they're, I, I, yeah, we're making them sound bad. I mean, people who raise no. chickens, they love their chickens, and they, 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 they yeah. uh, uh, But you can, you can see how when you, when you've only ever seen like a little, you know, white chicken or a little yeah. brown chicken, uh, and, and then suddenly you got, you know, these, and that we bred those into things like Rhode Island Reds, which are very commonly yep. known chickens today. Uh, and uh, you know that we're getting our eggs from those. It just—it really does make another fascinating story. We don't know really where these chickens come from. The name for the chickens probably isn't actually indicative of where they come from. They become popular just because the queen, who didn't get to play with other kids her age, likes yeah. to play with animals. Uh, then and then that you know gets everybody. And then we take these new chickens and we create breeds with them that are really yeah. the reason that we can do the production of eggs and chicken that we do today to make it such a. a, a, a popular meal so that you know we eat yeah. so much chicken oh now now we eat a, a lot of chicken i mean gosh i eat a lot of chicken in my day-to-day -day life we do there's when we made the chicken episode chicken had surpassed beef in terms of the amount that was eaten but we also had wow. a chicken shortage uh, and and the chicken shortage was for different reasons. There was an avian uh, flu epidemic, yeah. I understand, and that meant that you know you couldn't eat chickens outside, so you couldn't raise them as much. But one of them is, is the the biggest chicken producer in the nation uh, did a change their breed of chicken uh, based on taste tests on the quality of the meat, huh. and then they found out that that chicken doesn't produce nearly as many offspring. 
Uh, and so we ended up with a shortage. Uh, but And we're dealing with chickens, the same thing that we talk about with apples and oranges and bananas and the other episodes we talk about there, that we've got a few popular breeds of chickens uh, that we're using because they produce the eggs or they produce the meat that we want. Uh, but that means if that species, if that breed is particularly vulnerable to uh, a, an infection, a disease, a mite or something like that, uh, we don't have the variety uh, that, you know, where we might have, you know, some breeds that are resistant. Uh, yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, a lot of it's, it's kind of funny how similar it is to tulips, but also how similar it is to apples. Uh, and uh, but I mean, it's there's that, that that twist in the story to say that it really did allow us to breed, you know, better chickens. Yeah, it's well, and I mean, similar to the tulips where, you know, the Netherlands still still uses tulips that it's, mm -hmm. it's a big part of their tourism i'm sure that they're like you had said there's probably still a large market in tulips uh, this ultimately you know we started with something that's so silly of people i mean even the even the histories that we mentioned in this like the the, the dude who wrote who wrote the the humorous history of it um even even that uh was taken and turned into something i mean important economically mm -hmm. and in the case of the chicken i mean that's that's global i mean people eat chicken all over the world mm -hmm. and it's still uh, i mean today you would probably consider it a fairly cheap uh meat uh, but it's i mean certainly it is big business uh chickens are and chickens, i'm sure a massive business yeah Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just millions in chickens. But I, like you mentioned, I mean, you know, with the bananas, we had that. We the the one type of banana gets uh, almost totally wiped out by a particular kind of fungus. Is that yeah? We we end up with uh, uh, chickens that are particularly vulnerable to uh, yeah, to shortages by various. I mean, it's also the, uh, the the Great Famine in Ireland. Yeah. I mean, that had a lot to do with British economics and how the land was being used. But yeah. it really did come down to you know this population surviving on one kind of potato that was that yeah. was subject to the blight. Uh, so whenever you have a monocrop, you run into that risk. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we whenever you commercialize things, you're going to tend towards monocrops because people like to have. You're going to look for the most, yeah, and the most the efficient, that can, and that's going to you know the chicken that produces most eggs, that produces the most meat, or or, or the you know the, the the apple that you can get to the store before it for it rots. Well, and or of course, the the market expects a mm -hmm. uh, particular a particular kind of quality, mm -hmm. and for for in general, for we want to know that you know when we eat chicken. Uh, it's going to be essentially the same the same meat whether we're yeah, eating it you know Burger King that. or we're buying that at the store and that that's part of why you know it's that's probably the same kind of chicken and that's if there was bunches of different kinds of chicken it'd be a very it might be a very different be. story but you know maybe because of COVID uh, you've got a better mm -hmm. ability now to buy you know fresh farm fresh eggs than you ever had you know? true yeah, the price of eggs had really gone up for you know for those various reasons yeah but now you know, now there's a lot of people moved on. So there. So I, I can't grow chickens where I am. It's it, chickens are illegal, but uh, right around the corner, you're outside of city limits, and there's people right around the corner that have their chickens and they sell their eggs. And so, I, I wouldn't even have to go to the store to get eggs. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, it was great to put the the, the hen fever episode with the tulip mania episode because it made a yeah. lot of sense. But you can also watch the hen fever episode certainly with the episode on the history of chickens. We just got a lot of episodes that tie together. But so, and again, just like with the tulip episode, we learned a lot about chickens. Uh, while we're talking about this weird fad yeah. that we had about people buying different, you know, colored chickens. Yeah, ultimately, you know, I tried to, when I was writing this one, not we try not to cover the same ground 
uh, if we can help it. But we do. I mean, we touch on some of the yeah. same stuff yeah, in the chicken same, episode. Yeah. Uh, this one's just about a particular piece of you know this chicken history. It's interesting that I mean, England kind of got two waves of chickens because <laughs> uh-huh. you have the you have the chickens make their way across you know in in uh, antiquity, and then uh, and then you have these chickens come again like you know in the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. And these, <laughs> it's funny that that these were two waves of chickens, that, and the second wave changed it almost as much as the first wave would have uh, changed life and that's kind of an interesting uh you don't that was all human intervention essentially we passed chickens along uh 2800 years before uh you know before uh, and then we passed these new chickens along with these trade routes you know this guy who happened to find some in southeast asia and thought huh i bet the queen would like this uh they they talked about the the guy who in the episode the guy who is making fun of all the chickens he seems to be a guy who may be made out with more money than chickens mm-hmm. in the end, which is why he was able to laugh about it. Because there are probably some people who aren't there. I mean, they're uh, suddenly they're like, we hate these furry little demons mm-hmm. or these feathery little demons. How dare we have been stuck with them? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound yeah, like he was in I mean, the same As opposed boat. to the tulips, you can eat them. Yes. But as opposed well, to the tulips, uh, you know, they make noise and they poop. <laughs> you got to feed You them. actually have to do considerable work to take care of the Yeah, things. to take care of them. That's, we, we, when it got to the, they were really valueless, it was too expensive even to feed the chickens because yeah. you had to feed the chickens. Yeah, it's, well, when, you can, when you can sell a chicken for, you know, $15,000 or something crazy, uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's easy to feed all your chickens. But when suddenly the chickens are worth, you know one percent of that and you know, I uh, wonder if you have a prized chicken today uh, at the i'd have to go to the county fair again and see what the prized chickens are selling for yeah i'm not sure what the what chickens go for i bet you could still get some i mean i bet there's still oh, some i'm chickens sure yeah i mean whoever wins the blue ribbon at the fair always you know always gets a fair price yeah. so I, I don't know uh but uh i mean just like tulip mania though i mean chickens yeah. are a massive business i mean there were people who yeah. made a fortune there were people who lost a fortune there were people who you know lost their whole lives because they spent it to get chickens that turned out to be valuable but in the end uh uh we you know chickens are a valuable con- commodity that raises an awful lot of uh of you know money yeah. scratch i guess <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> and just like you know just like tulips it was another case where kind of suddenly it ended and mm-hmm. almost almost just like the tulips, it was essentially everyone had chickens, everyone wanted chickens, they all wanted their special eggs and everything. And then one day everyone's like, man, why am I paying so much for a chicken? Chicken, yeah. What, what is the point of this chicken? And uh, suddenly you couldn't sell a chicken to save your life. Mm-hmm. And all, the, all these like national, I mean, these national chicken shows and stuff that had all, uh, I mean, appeared overnight and mm-hmm. organized themselves. Suddenly all of that stuff was... Yeah, there's no longer a Thrown chicken to the wayside, yeah. yeah, thing going on. Yeah. yeah, you still see chickens at the county fair. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's some people who who continued to do it, but there's always people just like with the tulips who weren't so much into it because they thought tulips were pretty or that the chickens were cool and were more into it to make a quick buck. And I yeah, mean, that's, to make an investment, yeah. Yeah, and you see yeah, that. I mean, you're some right. Of those, some of those might have made money. Some of the, the problem yeah. with that sort of thing is that by the time you figure out it's that it's going, uh, then yeah. you're already you know running the risk that you're going to hit the, the bubble bursting. So yeah. most of us don't see the bubble until it's ready to gets big enough that it's ready to burst. Well, yeah. it does. It does remind me. You know, you, you mentioned cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. and I rem- I mean, you know, if you go back. 
five, seven years, something like that. Uh, everybody, all you know, all these people who are at the, at the forefront of the crypto thing, and they're like, oh, get into the, you just got to buy some cryptocurrency because you can buy like, you know, a Bitcoin and it'll be worth $70,000 or whatever. I mean, cryptocurrency is still around, but certainly that, that initial craze yeah. uh, is, it's just not, it's not what it was. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you went back to even just like 2011 and you invested in cryptocurrency, yeah. you'd make a huge yeah. return on it. But yeah. at the time, the, the reason you get a huge return is you had no idea really that it was going to be worth it then. So yeah, yeah I, I still don't know where we're going to stabilize with that. But I mean, obviously, cryptocurrency has different intrinsic value than yes. chickens and flowers. Uh, yes. And so they all, you, you know, can't eat your cryptocurrency. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cryptocurrency could literally just disappear, right? I mean, yeah, yeah but uh, you know, it's and it's this is not a channel on an investment advice oh, no. at all, please. So, but uh, if I, you I, I don't know anything me, about chickens and tulips <laughs> are coming back. If you want my investment advice, chickens and t- t- Buy tulips, some chickens. yeah, and yeah, plant a mix, yeah. yeah. Put your what I know about hours. cryptocurrency is that uh, some people made money on it, and it's confusing. And it's confu- and you can't eat it. Yeah, you can't eat it. Yeah. That I do know about cryptocurrency. You will never be able to eat your cryptocurrency. That's right. Well, you can't even pick it up. You can't shake an egg yeah. out of it. You know, it's, it's again not an investment channel. Don't want to be held no. responsible for the investment. No, channel. please, you please don't see don't, my don't, chickens. Uh, uh, don't use us as as investment. Not, not at all. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, we we look we look backwards, uh, and so it's easy, you know, to say when when they bought it, but it's, we don't yeah. look forward. If you would have bought a this chicken, is a history channel. This is... in like 1853, and then sold it before everything fell That's apart. Right. You if you'd gone to fine. China and gotten the chicken ahead of everybody else, and then you had yeah. the chickens right when people demanded the chickens, uh, you would have been the, the the chicken king. You would have chicken been millionaire, maybe Colonel Sanders too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.